0: Our Old Testament reading today is a rather lengthy one, but it's important for us to understand who the Samaritans are that we meet with in the New Testament. So our Old Testament reading takes us to the second book of Kings, the entire 17th chapter, before we turn to our sermon text in Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 51. Second Kings 17 sets us down in the latter half of the 8th century B.C., an eventful time in the history of redemption. <clears throat> and we read this, 2 Kings 17. This is the Word of God. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea the son of Elah became king over Israel in Samaria, and reigned 9 years and he did evil in the sight of the lord only not as the kings of israel who were before him shalmaneser king of assyria came up against him and hoshea became his servant and paid him tribute but the king of assyria found conspiracy in hoshea who had sent messengers to so king of egypt and had offered no tribute to the king of assyria as he had done year by year So the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded the whole land and went up to Samaria and besieged it three years. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried Israel away into exile to Assyria and settled them in Hala and Habor on the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. Now this came about because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up from the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt and they had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel and in the customs of the kings of Israel which they had introduced and the sons of Israel did things secretly which were not right against the Lord their God. Moreover, they built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. And they set for themselves sacred pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they burned incense on all the high places as the nations did, which the Lord had carried away to exile before them. And they did evil things, provoking the Lord, and they served idols, concerning which... The Lord had said to them, You shall not do this thing. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah, through all his prophets and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways, and keep my commandments, my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers, and which I sent to you through my servants the prophets. However, they did not listen, but stiffened their neck like their fathers, who did not believe in the Lord their God. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant, which he made with their fathers, and his warnings, with which he warned them. And they followed vanity and became vain and went after the nations which surrounded them, concerning which the Lord had commanded them not to do like them. And they forsook all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves molten images even two calves, and made an asherah, and worshipped all the host of heaven, and served Baal. Then they made their sons and their daughters pass through the fire, and practiced divination and enchantments, and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him. So the Lord was very angry with Israel, and removed them from his sight. None was left except the tribe of Judah. Also Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs which Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel, and afflicted them, and gave them into the hand of plunderers, until he had cast them out of his sight. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. Then Jeroboam drove Israel away from following the Lord and made them commit a great sin. And the sons of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam which he did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel from his sight as he spoke through all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was carried away into exile from their own land to Assyria until this day. And the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Cuthah and from Ava and from Hamath and Sepharvaim and settled them in the cities of Samaria, in place of the sons of Israel. So they possessed Samaria and lived in its cities. And it came about at the beginning of their living there that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have carried away into exile in the cities of Samaria do not know the custom of the God of the land, so he has sent lions among them, and behold, they kill them because they do not know the custom of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Take there one of the priests whom you carried away into exile, and let him go and live there, and let him teach them the custom, of the god of the land so one of the priests whom they had carried away into exile from samaria came and lived at bethel and taught them how they should fear the lord but every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the houses of the high places which the people of samaria had made every nation in their cities in which they lived and the men of babylon made sukoth benoth the men of Cruth made Nergal, the men of Hamath made Ashima, and the Avites made Nivhaz and Tartak, and the Sepharvites burned their children in the fire to Adramalek and Anamelech, the gods of Sepharvayim. They also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves priests of the high places who acted for them in the houses of the high places. They feared the Lord, and served their own gods, according to the custom of the nations, from among whom they had been carried away into exile. To this day they do according to the earlier customs. They do not fear the Lord, nor do they follow their statutes, or their ordinances, or the law, or the commandments which the Lord commanded the sons of Jacob, whom he named Israel with whom the Lord made a covenant and commanded them, saying, You shall not fear other gods, nor bow down yourselves to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them. But the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt with great power and with an outstretched arm, him you shall fear, and to him you shall bow yourselves down, and to him you shall sacrifice. And the statutes and the ordinances and the law And the commandment which he wrote for you, you shall observe to do forever, and you shall not fear other gods. And the covenant that I have made with you, you shall not forget, nor shall you fear other gods. But the Lord your God you shall fear, and he will deliver you from the hand of all your enemies. However, they did not listen. But they did according to their earlier custom. So while these nations feared the Lord, they also served their idols, their children likewise, and their grandchildren, as their fathers did. So they do to this day. We turn now to Luke's Gospel, the ninth chapter Verses 51-56 to And it came about when the days were approaching for his ascension that he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem and he sent messengers on ahead of him and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. And they did not receive him, because he was journeying with his face toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. Let us pray, Heavenly Father, into this dark and divided world of idolaters and idolatry, you have sent in the fullness of time a Savior. A redeemer to be the light of the world and the Savior of men show us Jesus we pray from these pages and we ask it in the name of Christ Jesus our Savior and King Amen our redemption from sin and death by the blood of Jesus Christ is a drama of genuine biblical proportions And it's played out in several major acts and scenes. The curtain first opens on a solemn covenant of redemption settled among the persons of the Trinity before time was. Before time was. God the Father gives to God the Son a definite number of persons yet to be created, yet to be born, his elect, his chosen ones. Whom the Son eternally pledges to save, losing not one of them throughout all future ages. And the Holy Spirit keeps the minutes of that meeting, as it were, recording the transaction and its covenantal unfolding in the ages of history yet to come. It was He, the Holy Spirit, who inspired Moses and all subsequent prophets. The story then continues on through the creation and fall of men, on through the eons of redemption history to the coming of Christ into the world in the fullness of time. And then, having come into the world, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ consisted, as we know, of several distinct phases. There was his birth and youth, his baptism and testing, his early ministry in Judea, his great Galilean ministry, and his brief retirement ministry way up north to train his disciples. And now here at verse 51, we see the opening of a new scene. A new phase of his redemptive mission begins here. The next milestone suddenly comes into view. The milestone, actually, we should properly call it the finish line of his marathon life, his ascension again to the glory that he ever had with the Father before the world was. He's rounding the bend of his earthly ministry, and this is what he sees ahead of him. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, ever since their training conference near Caesarea Philippi, Jesus has been drilling into the student body of his school for preachers the proper mission of the Christ, hasn't he? The proper mission, that it's to suffer, to be rejected of men, to die, and then on the third day to be raised again. Those aren't prospects that any man enters into with gladness, and yet he goes. Come what may, he goes. He set his face like flint. Now this generation of ours here in the first half of the 21st century, this is a generation that loves to keep its options open, isn't it? We seldom see covenants and commitments Uh, We see solemn covenants and commitments being tossed aside with distressing regularity the moment they become inconvenient. We seldom see covenants kept, too seldom. So I need to ask you, does such personal courage born of sheer determination to keep a solemn covenant promise move you? Does it kindle something within you to hear of a Savior who demonstrates such an iron resolve to finish the job he started? And does something lovely, a sweet thrill, a joy resonate within you at the infinite, eternal love that lay at the root of such an inflexible determination to save you? The Lord Jesus Christ didn't love that old rugged cross that was waiting for him in Jerusalem. He had no sentimental attachment to it whatsoever. It was horrible. It was horrible. He shrank from the very prospect of the cross just as you would or I would. It's unimaginable pain at every level that pain can be felt. Yet for love... And in covenant faithfulness, he made up his mind to look through it, to look beyond it, to the rest of the Father's covenant promises to him, all of which hinged on his undergoing the agonies of that cross. Years later, another apostle put it this way, In the race, God calls each one of us to run, facing the hardships of life and death each one of us has, is called to face. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It was for the joy set before him that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem a joy that overleaped the agonies of the cross, the joy of his approaching ascension to live and reign once again in the presence of his Father in heaven. Now, the most direct route from Jesus' recent ministry headquarters in Capernaum of Galilee, southward to Jerusalem of Judea, the most direct route between them, lay right through the heart of this ethnically and religiously mixed region called Samaria. Like so many in our own diversity-driven culture today, the Samaritans weren't only badly confused theologically, they were hardened in their confusion. They were hardened in their prejudices. They were lost and didn't even realize it, which made Samaria, sad to say, a pretty bad place to be. It was a bad place to marry and raise a family. If it's covenant faithfulness and stability you're after. It was a bad place to grow up. If you wanted to grow up knowing the truth about the living God and the world he made. It wasn't even a particularly safe place to travel through. Partly because God's law, which protects sojourners and other vulnerable people far from home. God's law wasn't honored in Samaria. But passing through Samaria had other dangers too beyond the danger of physical violence. There's the spiritual danger that comes of spending too much time there, because bad habits cling to us, don't they? Others' bad habits become our bad habits, and they cling to us. When God's law isn't honored, when it isn't consulted as the standard of human behavior, we measure ourselves and we measure our behavior by the sliding scale of others around us. The human soul, unfortunately, is a magnet for picking up the bad habits and the sloppy thinking of those nearby, both of which are rampant in Samaria. Bad habits, sloppy thinking... What does a proverb say? He who walks with wise men will be wise but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Samaria is not a great place to be. For the most part the knowledge of the living and true God which is to say the God of the Bible, the God incarnate in Christ this God just isn't welcome in Samaria. These are lands formerly occupied by several of the ten northern tribes of Israel, the tribes that fell away. Back in the days of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, they fell away from the house of David. They fell away from the grace and mercy of Jehovah their God, who on eagle's wings had brought them out of Egypt, out of the house of slaves. Jeroboam didn't want to see his people going up to Jerusalem anymore not for the feasts God prescribes in his law, not for any reason. He denied any possibility of the return of those ten tribes to the house of David and to David's God and to his law. So Jeroboam had set up his own completely arbitrary civic religion with his own priesthood and his own worship centers on his authority alone. Two of these worship centers, in fact, one up north in Dan and a southern one in Bethel. Just to make religion more palatable, more convenient, more supportive of his godless civil government. God had in his law commanded none of this arrangement and had, in fact, by the first two commandments, forbidden all of it. All of this that Jeroboam is doing is absolutely forbidden it's a completely imaginary religious and cultural infrastructure by which Jeroboam meant only to serve his own political ends so the northern kingdom with its capital in samaria was a kingdom built on sand and what became of that arrangement we read a little while ago in second kings 17 it says Then Jeroboam drove Israel away from following the Lord and made them commit a great sin. The sons of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam which he did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel from his sight as he spoke through all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was carried away to exile from their own land to Assyria until this day. The king of Assyria brought men from Babylon, and from Kutha, and from Ava, and from Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and settled them in the cities of Samaria in place of the sons of Israel, so they possessed Samaria, and lived in its cities. So that's where these Samaritans came from. Forced deportations and resettlement in land that wasn't theirs. Now I should probably tell you or remind you that all this happened fully nine and a half centuries before this unhappy little encounter we read of in today's text. There are human animosities, beloved, that just don't heal with the passage of time. Interpersonal animosities, but also intergenerational ones. Healing those rifts takes more than time it takes the entrance of light the entrance of power the entrance of grace it takes the decisive entrance in other words of Christ and it takes a willing heart not two years earlier by the side of a Samaritan well Jesus had actually made a start at defrosting the frosty relationships between Jews and Samaritans, at least on a very small scale. In one little village, he'd gained an entrance you can read of in John's Gospel, chapter 4. But, of course, that was then, and this is now. Now he's headed not northward to Galilee, as he was there in John, chapter 4. Now he's heading southward to Jerusalem. He's heading to Jerusalem, where he's got to suffer and be rejected of men and die. And so as a simple courtesy to his intended Samaritan hosts along the way, simple courtesy, he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him, because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. Jerusalem. He was traveling toward Jerusalem, a place and a people Samaritans hated. Jerusalem? What's Jerusalem got that we Samaritans don't have? You're a great man, Jesus. Why not worship right here with us? Worship in our temple. Just imagine the luster of legitimacy it might add to the Samaritan Temple to have the renowned Jesus of Nazareth, a universal celebrity, worshipping there. So just cross Jerusalem off your list of places to go and things to see, and you'll be more than welcome here. Glad to have you. And look, our temple's conveniently located right here on Mount Gerizim. No fuss, no muss, no long walk to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. convenient indeed it would have been but wrong would have been wrong how can any good and godly man worship in a house of idols how can the Savior in particular whose central mission is to die in Jerusalem not go to Jerusalem If you want to gauge what a monumental snub this rejection represents to a great man going to his atoning death, just think how vitally important hospitality was and still is to the Oriental cultures. Think, for instance, of the extravagant hospitality Abraham showed those three perfect strangers in Genesis 18. And think of the house of Bethuel, showing such hospitality toward Abraham's servant in Genesis 24, and many, many others besides. There are notable exceptions, but as a cultural norm, this is how Middle Eastern cultures treat strangers, with hospitality that's absolutely over the top. Only deeply ingrained bigotry could turn the vice of inhospitality toward strangers into an imagined virtue. Now, as you know by now, the twelve disciples are a class of boys and young men. These are not yet the seasoned paragons of maturity and good judgment most of them will eventually become. And each of them has his own distinct personality, which uh, comes out in the pages of the Gospels if you read them long enough. It's not without reason that Jesus came to call James and John Boanerges, sons of thunder, or even, we might paraphrase it, rabble-rousers, troublemakers. James and John were troublemakers. Peter may have been the self-appointed class spokesman, but if there was ever trouble being stirred up, the sons of Zebedee were the usual suspects, probably behind it as they are here. Now the fault certainly lay not in their love for Jesus. They're absolutely loyal to their master. They're loyal to a fault. It doesn't sit well with these two brothers that their Lord and Master, their teacher who was in fact the very Christ of God, that he isn't received with all the extravagant courtesies that are typically poured out on others that the christ of all people shouldn't have a place to lay his head it's disgraceful dishonorable disreputable it's a slap in the face which after all is how teenagers often think isn't it might even say typically think easily offended everything's black and white no room for reflection no room for mature judgment Now, these disciples had already received certain extraordinary powers way back in the opening verse of this ninth chapter. They've exercised those powers already in their respective preaching tours throughout the villages of Galilee. And as you may know, to young men who are so entrusted with a little power, anything can seem possible. I think back to the time I was teaching my own children to drive. They'd gotten their learning permits. They'd gotten themselves into the driver's seat. And then before they turned the key from the seat beside them, they got the standard lecture from their dad. It began something like this. What you're about to do, Gretchen or Jeremy or Kristen, what you're about to do is the most dangerous and potentially deadly thing most people will ever undertake to do in their lives. With the wheel of a 2,000-pound motor vehicle in your hands, you have within your grasp the power to kill, maim, and otherwise alter the course of your life and the lives of countless others forever. All it takes is one fleeting instant of not paying attention. That's how my lecture started. And we started this way, of course, because young people entrusted with new powers tend to think they can do practically anything they want to do with these powers. And so it was with James and John. These Samaritans are behaving poorly. So, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now, the Samaritans, of course, had behaved poorly, indeed, no question about it. But here's the good news for these bad Samaritans it's the good news of time and opportunity to repent. Today's sin doesn't have to be tomorrow's sin, it doesn't have to be the eternal sin you carry with you to the grave. So he turned and rebuked them. Jesus turned and rebuked James and John, the sons of thunder. He rebuked not the uncharitable Samaritans, but his own uncharitable disciples. And why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't they? After all, they're soon going to become teachers themselves, aren't they? And on the solid foundation of their apostolic doctrine and practice, Christ is going to build his church to last until the end of the age. It's a tremendous trust to be entrusted with the keys to the kingdom of heaven. What these young men are about to undertake is, in a sense, the most dangerous and potentially deadly thing any men have ever undertaken in all the annals of history. He turned and rebuked them because they need to know that as teachers they incur a stricter judgment. This unhappy moment of gospel history represents good news for bad Samaritans because Jesus patiently extends them time to live, time to rethink, time to repent. But it's good news at another level of meaning as well because besides being historically true in itself, this episode also represents a microcosm of Christ's and his place in human history. One of those two sons of thunder, James, died a young man. But for Judas Iscariot the traitor, James, son of Zebedee, was the first of the apostles to die for his testimony of the surpassing grace of Christ. You can read of James' martyrdom in chapter 12 of Luke's second volume, The Acts of the Apostles. The other son of thunder, John, was apparently the last of the twelve to die. John lived a very long life through an incredibly busy and turbulent age, and the teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness he received of the Lord along life's way turned this fiery, impetuous young boy into the mature apostle who became known to history ever after, as the Apostle of Love. It was John who seems to have made the theological connection between this unhappy, personally painful incident in Samaria and world history as a whole. The Lord Jesus Christ occupies the same place in both arenas. John writes, The Word became flesh, And dwelt among us. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. He was in the world. And the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own things. And his own did not receive him. It was true on the large scale of his whole earthly ministry. And it appeared in microcosm, in miniature. In this personal rejection, he meekly suffered along the way to Jerusalem. Men reject the harmless Jesus. Men reject Jesus who over and over again proves himself to be the fount of every blessing. The Samaritans did not receive him. The world did not receive him. The universe he made did not receive him. But, says the old son of thunder, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Beloved, God give you the special grace to receive him by faith and to make your receiving, believing heart his home.